I noticed Gary and Deb, you may be seated, by the way. I noticed Gary and Deb were uh, a little excited for that last song. It's a little bit relevant in your life right now. It's a beautiful thing. Well, this morning, um, please take your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to continue in our series in Exodus, Exodus chapter 4. And uh, I don't know about all of you, but I've really been enjoying this series. We're glad, of course, to have Pastor Rob back in the pulpit. And this series has been really um, uh, kind, of, kind of refreshing. You know, as we've come through years of Romans, it's been nice to get into this narrative. And I've certainly benefited from it, and I hope you have as well. We'll continue then in Exodus chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 10 and read through verse 17. So if you actually would stand again with me, and we'll read. You're welcome for that little break. Verses 10 through 17 of Exodus 4. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Now you can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Rob directed us to see the hand of God at work in this narrative as he gave to Moses proof that he would certainly provide what Moses needed to validate him as a messenger of God as he goes to Pharaoh as he goes to deliver the Hebrew people and ask them to follow him. It's a grand task, right? And Moses feels the weight of it. But God is going to provide the grace and the power necessary to give Moses success. And as God shows his hand of power, he's going to both validate Moses as his messenger, proving through those signs, which we talked about last week, that the power of God and the presence of God was actually with Moses, But God is also revealing evidence to confirm his stunning claim of self-revelation that he is, in fact, the I am. The one self-existent, eternal God, creator, Lord of the universe who causes to be and never changes. So we're going to continue now in this section of the narrative looking at objections that Moses is raising. As God is calling him to do this task, Moses is coming up with reasons and questions and problems that, to this point, God continues to answer sufficiently and effectively to eliminate the problems, the supposed problems that Moses is raising. Five objections Moses comes up with. The first one that we saw is in verse 11 of chapter 3. 
he asks, who am I? Who am I that I should be called to do this great deed? And that's a reasonable question. And how does God answer him? He doesn't start saying, well, you're, you're a great man. Think of the education you have. Think of the position you had in Egypt. You were raised as a prince. You can do this. God doesn't build up his confidence and his self-esteem. And as we go through, it, through this, I hope that we'll see, as opposed to a very prevalent idea in the world, that all we really need is more self-esteem. All we really need is to think more highly of ourselves. We just have to be confident and think of what we can do. That's not what God tells him. God says, no, no, look at me. I will be with you. I will go with you and provide the grace that you need. The second objection, what if they ask who sent you? Who, who told you to do this? Who sent you to do this task? And God says, tell them the God of your fathers. Tell them I am sent you. Then Moses comes up with another problem. Well, what if they don't believe me? What if I tell them? And they don't believe me that I met with you, that I've spoken with you, and you've given me this job. Well, he gives them the signs. Today we're going to look at the last two objections. The first one in 4.10 is, I don't speak well. I really don't communicate well, so I don't think I'm the right person for this job. And then finally, he comes right out with it in 4.13 and says, send someone else. Well, God is going to respond to Moses, and he's going to overrule the objections that Moses is raising. It's as, as if God is a judge in the courtroom, and objections are raised to what's being proposed, and the judge says, no, those objections aren't going to stand. They're not sufficient. They're not relevant. Objections overruled. It's as if God will say, what I've planned is exactly what's going to happen, and you're the one I'm going to use to accomplish it. That's what Moses is going to learn. So first of all, our first point, objections in the mirror. Objections in the mirror. And what I want us to notice is that as Moses is coming up with all these reasons why he's not the right man for the job, why he's insufficient for the job, he's got all these deficiencies, uh, it's because Moses is looking in the mirror. He's looking at his own reflection and seeing all kinds of flaws. How many of you enjoy the confidence-boosting experience of, of looking in the mirror and, and seeing something you don't like about yourself, right? There's some kind of flaw, something you wish were different. Maybe it's the shape or proportion of your face. Maybe it's, it's the color or the quantity of your hair. Could be any number of things, but it's kind of disappointing, right? And it leads you to not really enjoy looking in the mirror and liking what you see. It's, it brings despair, perhaps. And so that's exactly what's happening with Moses. He's looking in the mirror. And as he looks at himself and evaluates his giftedness and his ability, he finds deficiencies. And ultimately, he reasons, tries to reason with God as to why someone else should go and release Israel from Egypt. Now, for context, just as we came through verses 1 through 9 last week, God had answered Moses' previous objection. How will they believe me that you sent me by giving him these signs? And was that enough for Moses? No, it was not enough. Instead of consenting, he comes up with this next problem. So objection number four, I'm not eloquent. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue or heavy of tongue. Okay. And so here's, here's Moses' objection. In the, in the common vernacular, it might be, I don't talk real good. Okay. I can't do this because I'm not very well spoken. Thought of our system of government in America and the American people often highly value the eloquence, the, the polished speech of, of the people that they elect. Sometimes they're willing to choose uh, substance over style, but more often than not, the politician who's running for office, who's able to artfully and skillfully craft the most compelling, most inspirational message is the one who is elected. So is a polished tongue what's necessary here for a servant of the Lord? Is that what God's going to require for Moses to be successful? Well, Moses seemed to think so. Now, when he says this, I'm not eloquent, it's a very interesting statement. Probably many of us have heard that, well, he must have had some sort of speech impediment. He must have maybe a stutter, perhaps. And so that was, that was a limitation, you know, that he maybe had from birth. And, and now it's reasonable why he says he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to speak because he has this impediment. Well, while that's a common theory, the Bible doesn't tell us that, Okay. And in fact, you know, he does a whole lot of speaking. And right now he's doing a lot of speaking and reasoning with God. And he doesn't, doesn't seem to have any problems with that. Okay, so I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure it's that simple. Another possibility suggested is that after 40 years away from Egypt, he's been out in the wilderness. He's been a shepherd. Okay, maybe he's not so uh, eloquent or, or fluent in his Egyptian anymore, right? After 40 years in the desert. Or perhaps in his Hebrew. And now he feels like he's... he's insufficient. He's incompetent to really entreat with Pharaoh and, and be taken seriously. Okay, that's a possibility. Not unreasonable. Still, Scripture doesn't tell us that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say in Acts 7.22 that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. We know he had this education like he was a prince. And he was mighty in words and deeds. This, these are the characteristics of Moses, mighty in words and deeds. So here, Moses' excuse is kind of confusing. So which is it? Well, I believe if we, if we look at some context, it isn't uh, immediately apparent right here. We see that there's a common way of, of communicating in Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture that expresses... Um, kind of an exaggerated humility, a self-deprecation, saying really in an honor and shame culture, the person who's speaking to you, giving you this privilege or giving you this task, saying, oh, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not good enough for this. And it's really to build that person up and lower yourself. It's extremely common. We find it throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 18, 27, Abraham does it. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Saul does it when he's called by Samuel to be the king in 1 Samuel. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all clans? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? David does it, 1 Samuel. Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. 
Jeremiah 1.6, Jeremiah's commissioned to be a prophet of the Lord. What does he say? Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So we see this over and over, this, this pattern of speech, of self-deprecation, of, of exaggerated humility. And not all of it's completely accurate, right? Jeremiah didn't actually think he was a child, but he's expressing humility. So that cultural norm helps us understand what Moses is doing here. However, that's also not the whole picture. Because Moses isn't saying, well, I'm not the most well-spoken messenger. I'm not really worthy of this task, but I'll go do it anyway. Ultimately, he's saying, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not qualified. I don't believe he was simply fabricating a lie that he wasn't articulate enough for the task. I think it was a real concern. I think Moses was genuinely concerned about his ability to speak to Pharaoh. So he believed it was a deficiency that should disqualify him. After all, there certainly must be somebody out there who is better at speaking and communicating than I am. And that's true, right? That's true. Certainly there was somebody out there who could communicate more eloquently with Pharaoh. But that wasn't what God was asking. The fact that God provided Aaron to speak for him, as we'll see a little bit later in the text, God gives him Aaron. He says, he will speak for you. I know he can speak well. Kind of supports the fact that I I think Moses was genuinely concerned about this limitation. So while exaggerating, he had this concern, um, something to do with his communication. He felt it was insufficient. Now, up until this point, the concerns that he's raised, these objections that we see Moses raising, don't they seem kind of reasonable? I mean, when we think about it, the questions that he's asking, they're good questions. They're fair questions. I mean, who am I? I'm a fugitive from Egypt. Sure, I was raised in the palace, but then Pharaoh tried to kill me, okay? And I've been chased out of uh, Egypt. And by the way, the Hebrew people who I was trying to help from oppression, they really didn't seem so favorable to me as well. And uh, my, my um, time in the desert as a shepherd, Egyptians hate shepherds, okay? And so who am I to do this? That's a reasonable question. His next question, who should I tell them sent me? That's a reasonable question. They would be expecting for some kind of evidence, some kind of proof that Moses had come from the Lord, okay? You know, and think about the story he might tell. Well, you know, I was walking through the desert, and then there, there was this bush, you know, and it was on fire, but it wasn't really burning. And then a voice spoke out of the bush, and it was God. And so he told me to come do this, okay? If somebody came to you and said that today, what are you going to do? You're probably not going to believe him. You're probably going to try to get away as fast as you can, right? And so he's going to need some evidence. And so God gives him validation. God gives him signs. In fact, remember, Israel was in slavery with no direct revelation from God for 400 years. And so this would have been very odd now to have someone come and say, listen, God told me this. This is what's going to happen. Okay? So these are reasonable questions. However, in this fourth objection, I'm not eloquent. While it was a legitimate concern of Moses, we ultimately see that it becomes an excuse. It starts to become an excuse for why Moses shouldn't be the one to go. And it's possible even that this question goes beyond an excuse 
and starts to become an indirect or implicit criticism of God himself. Look at the language. Look at verse 10 again. I have this problem. I'm not eloquent. I never have been eloquent. And since you've been speaking to me, it hasn't changed. You have not fixed this problem. I have this problem and you haven't fixed it. We need to be careful as well when we speak to God. When we think about and complain about something we wish were different in our lives. The circumstances God has handed us, whatever they may be. When we say we want something different. You have given me this problem and you haven't fixed it. Even from the point at which you began to speak to me and called me to yourself in Christ, you still haven't removed this struggle, this stumbling block that makes my life so difficult. We start to wonder, have you forgotten me? Have you abandoned me? Don't you see me, God? I have these problems. And I look around and it seems like your other children are enjoying blessing after blessing from your hand. And here I am receiving blow after blow. And the truth is, we may be enduring trouble that others are not. We may have weaknesses that others don't have to deal with. But when we complain, what are we saying about God? When we ask that God would change something that he's chosen not to change, to fix a problem that he's chosen not to fix, ultimately we're saying, God, you have not been good to me. God, you are not faithful. God, you are unjust. You are unrighteous. You've treated me wrongly. You've given me a burden that I should never have had to bear. And you've withheld good things that I should be enjoying. These are the things that ultimately are implied when we complain about the things that the sovereign Lord has planned for our lives. May those words never pass our lips or be found in our hearts, either explicitly or implicitly. Because Romans 3 says, Does our faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and every man a liar. Because that's exactly what's happening. In our faithlessness, we begin to lie about God. To say that God is not good. To say that God is not just. To say that God is unrighteous. It's true that Jesus has called us, brothers and sisters, to take up our cross, each of us, and follow him. We each have a cross to bear, but the path that we tread may look a little different for each of us. For some of us, it might be a little steeper than the person next to us. For some of us, it might be a little more rocky as we carry our cross and follow Christ. That's a reality. I think about Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, the Lancers and Nystroms, and Rachel and myself, we were at a conference recently. We got to hear her speak. We got to hear her sing. It's always encouraging because she's always so joyful in the midst of 50 years of paralysis, 50 years of suffering and pain and trouble that the Lord hasn't taken away. 
She could, like Moses, say, you have not fixed my problem yet. What are you doing? But instead, her testimony is one of joy and a nearness to God that she would not otherwise know had it not been for the trial God has given her. Can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? God is sovereign. And we have to hold fast to his promises that he knows what he's doing when he gives us the life that he's chosen for us. So whatever our lot, we trust that he is good, that in his wisdom, he has good reasons for even the trials that he's chosen to put us through. Moses needed to understand that God had made him just as articulate as he wanted him to be, and it wasn't going to prevent God from being successful. Second objection, or fifth objection, send someone else. Okay, so now we see in verses 12 and 13, God has answered his objection about not being eloquent. He says, I will be with your mouth. I will enable you. And now Moses says, finally, listen, please just send somebody else. I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. Find someone else. So no more reasons. No more excuses. The cards are all on the table. There's no mystery. There's no interpretation now trying to determine what's behind Moses' questions. It all comes out. Someone else, someone better equipped than me, should go. And it's here that we clearly see what may have began as reasonable concerns become faithlessness, a lack of faith. Now, had God not graciously provided for all of his prior concerns, I will do this. I will promise you success. I will grant you success. I will give you these signs. I will be with you. I will empower you. You will be successful. What more, what more could Moses ask for? Really, what more could Moses want? And the answer is nothing, of course. God was going to give him absolutely everything necessary for him to be successful. But it wasn't enough for Moses. And so Moses runs out of reasons, runs out of, you know, thoughtful and intelligent questions of God as to why this shouldn't happen. And now he simply says, there's nothing left to hide behind. Just please send someone else. I don't want to go. So Moses began with rational questions, then simply chose not to believe in the promises and provision of God. Beginning with humility, he ended with intently disobedient faithlessness. Here's a principle for us. When, when appropriate humility, and I mean by that appropriate humility is recognizing the place of God compared to us, we are his creatures, he is God, and we should be humble in that instance, right? When God speaks, when God commissions, we should be humble. That's appropriate. However, well-intentioned, appropriate humility, when it starts to oppose and obstruct the will of God, it becomes a false virtue. It simply becomes sin. Now, if there was any doubt before, which sometimes we need to remind ourselves, breaking away from maybe the moralistic Sunday school lessons we may have heard, Moses, if it wasn't already clear, is not the hero of the story. Plain and simple. He's a sinner just like us. 
and his sin in this moment is unbelief. And Moses had every reason to believe God and to obey, but instead he kept staring in the mirror at his own reflection and despairing at all the problems he saw with why he would not be able to accomplish the task. He looked at the job description and perhaps would have wholeheartedly agreed with what Jesus would later say, with man this is impossible. Amen. That's absolutely true. I can't do this. But he missed the last part. With God, all things are possible. Our second point now, if Moses has objections, all these problems, all these deficiencies that he raises, when staring at himself, he needs corrected vision. The exclusive object for eyes of faith is the God who empowers, the God who gives grace, and the God who is sovereign over all human events. So how did God respond to his faithless servant? He didn't leave him staring at his own reflection. He shatters the mirror. He grabs Moses' face and says, look at me. You parents probably all know what it's like to say something similar to your children. When you know they're not hearing a word you're saying, look at my eyes. Where are you? That's what God needed to do with Moses. So first of all, uh, Moses has a Job moment. Look at verse 11. After Moses says, well, I can't speak well. That's a problem. God says in verse 11, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so God uses the same approach he took with Job and his questioning friends and his doubtful wife. Through a series of rhetorical questions, God effectively answers doubtful human questioning by contrasting his holiness with human unholiness, his power with human weakness, his wisdom with human ignorance, and his divine prerogative as creator with our creaturely submission. He puts Moses in his place, just as he did with Job. He's opening Moses' eyes so he can see just how wide the chasm is between these two beings. He makes Moses understand his smallness, his place beneath sovereign God. And in that right perception of God's sovereignty over the situation, the circumstances of human existence, he nullifies Moses' objection about his inability to speak well. Kind of like the conversation went like this. Moses says, God, I'm concerned with how my mouth works. It doesn't work well enough for this. God says, guess what, Moses? I made your mouth. I did that. I designed that. I formed your body so that air would leave your lungs, 